Look, over the last 10 years, there's been a tremendous movement of ESG investing. Yeah. You know, Just Climate that will come on to talk about is part of the Generation family, and they have been an, a, a leader in developing those ESG products. And that has been incredibly helpful work and has been really necessary to establish that broad ESG framework of investing, but is no longer sufficient given the limited time we have left to curb carbon emissions. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Tekla von Bülow, Principal for Commission Projects at Aurora's Berlin office. Today, we will be diving into the topic of sustainable finance and climate impact investment and how this whole space is helping to accelerate climate action. My guest on the show today is Sean Kingsbury. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Tekla. Nice to see you. Sean, it's great to have you on the show today. Uh, for a start, I'd like to give our listeners a bit of background on you and, and your fantastic career. So after studying business administration in Belfast, you started off working for Shell and the big corporate world for around 10 years. In the early 2000s, you became interested in renewables, especially investment uh, into renewables and the potential around clean energy technologies. And was that you switched from being an industry person to, to becoming an investor? You started then taking on different roles in the investment space, working for uh, private equity firm 3i, and then eventually joining Hudson Clean Energy, a Miami based uh, PE firm, which you helped raise a uh, billion dollar fund. Your next role then would become the one, I hope it's fair to say, the one you're most known for so far. Um, you set up and headed up the world's first low-carbon investment bank, which was known as the UK Green Investment Bank, or, or GIB. In 2018, the, the UK Green Investment Bank was acquired by Macquarie and is now known as GIG, the green investment group within the Macquarie Group. With the acquisition of Macquarie, you left GIB and went on to support and pursue various different projects and challenges over the last couple of years, um, which we, we, we will be talking about today. So currently, you are the chairman at Renewable Power Capital, which is a CCPIB-backed investment group investing in renewables across Europe. You are the founder of Climate Transition Capital and Amsterdam SPAC with an investment focus on hardware-based sectors. Um, you are also the chairman of CNG Fuels, a leading provider in the UK of biomethane for heavy good vehicle transport. And last but not least, you are the chief investment officer at Just Climate, a newly set up business, which actually launched in the beginning of November and which we will be talking about uh, a bit more in the podcast today. So quite a, a long and impressive career already, uh, Sean. I would like to uh, dive in a little bit uh, deeper um, uh, on, on the various uh, stages there of your career, uh, as it's really one of a kind. So let me start off and, and try to understand a little bit more um, what happened in the early 2000s and, and what made you realize you wanted to move away from actually working in the industry um, uh, to become an investor um, in, in renewables. 
Well, Tecla, thank you for reading through that. Goodness, the only reason it's long is I guess I'm really old now. So uh, I'll have to delve back and see if I can remember in the deep back, uh, passes of time uh, my decision processes. But what I really like is creating new things. I'm kind of an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, if you think of someone who starts businesses within companies. And my real interest started off in the renewable sector because in the early 2000s, it was new. People were not building wind or solar at scale. It was a new, novel, innovative area of energy. And I'd spent the last 10 years working in the industrial side of energy. And as I started to look at how you could build these businesses, my, invest, my, my interest, I guess, at the beginning was really around building the businesses. But as you start to build that and think about that, you really need to raise capital and you quickly come to meet the investment world. You meet the private equity guys, you meet the venture capital guys, and eventually you meet the infrastructure people as well. And as I thought about what they did, I really realized that if I was going to continue to build companies and to, to really focus on renewables, I would be better being an investor. And I, I, I started off working with the investors, bringing my industrial skills and knowledge to bear. And eventually, after a few years, I decided to sort of flip over to the other side of the table, joining with 3i as an entrepreneur in residence, and then eventually Hudson to raise my first fund. But my, my interest initially was because I like new things. I like novel things. I like creating things. But of course, as you spend time within the renewable sector to begin with, you start to learn more and more about the the challenges of climate change. And as I learned more about the science behind this and the situation, it went from being something that was hugely interesting to really becoming a mission for me. And it's been the mission for most of the last 20 years to really put my skills and expertise and networks and time into doing something that can really make a difference around climate. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, you, you were quite early in, in investing into renewables in that sense. So um, t tell us a bit how different investment in, into renewables was back in the days compared to, to what you're seeing today, especially also with what you're doing, for instance, with, with renewable power capital. Yeah, I, I guess at the beginning, the scale wasn't there. Uh, project finance for these types of assets was nascent and people were getting used to the idea of intermittent power and trying to figure out the energy yield you would get from solar or the energy yield you would get from wind. It was all a bit new. People were used to running assets that you put fuel into and they consistently produce power. And these were assets that you built and then they intermittently produce power based on your estimates of the wind resource or the solar resource. So it was really early, it was nascent and people were just not used to the scale. When you tried to raise capital for a development business or something like that, it was it was much more difficult. There weren't the uh, established sources of capital that there are now. Now, of course, that business is matured, and and really thanks to some of the support mechanisms that have been in place over much of the last twenty years, whether those be feed-in tariffs, whether those be green certificates, whether those be tax breaks, for example, in North America, but. As those, those, those facilitation sort of devices help really bring renewables to the, to the fore, allowing it to compete with conventional power prices while it came down the power curves and while it came down the cost curves. And as a result of that, we now find ourselves in a situation today where around two thirds or 75% of the world 
renewable energy is now the cheapest form of energy. Sometimes in some places it's solar and in some places it's wind. But soon, within the next three or four years, almost everywhere in the world, as wind and solar continue to decline in price, will be the cheapest form of power generation. And what that means is we are able to get rid of those feed-in tariffs. They were tremendously helpful for a while, but now the business really has to start taking merchant risk and stand on its own two feet and finance these projects, much like conventional power has been financed over the last 20 years. And that's a particular point for uh, for the entry and the creation of renewable power capital that you mentioned in your question. In your question, RPC we set that up last year with the backing of CPPIB to really take advantage of this situation. It's a new company, so it doesn't have any of those legacy assets which are tied to feed-in tariffs or contracts for differences or other support mechanisms. It's really looking forward and seeing the world is moving. You will have to take merchant risk. You'll have to take development risk. You'll have to take financing or refinancing risk. And so we've set up a company which has flexible capital. It can invest in development. It can invest and take construction risk. It can buy assets before there is project financing in place or even a PPA in place because we believe that's what will be necessary and that is the market of the future. So hopefully that helps describe the transition over the last 20 years. Yeah, thank you, Sean. So the it's really interesting to hear about you talking about the, the importance of subsidy schemes uh, back in the days and and your vision of saying that subsidy schemes uh, may may soon become history and that is actually possible um, to build out all these renewables on uh, on a merchant basis. So um, in your experience, um, how do banks perceive that development? Um, are they already fine uh, with with merchant build out, or will they get there? And it, and it depends. So I think everyone's moving in the same direction um, because they're all looking at the same indications, and they all understand the cost of renewables today and the fact that uh, it continues to fall in many cases below the power, the below the cost of conventional power. So of course, if you have a twenty year uh, contract or feed-in tariff that makes financing these assets with 15-year uh, amortizing debt relatively easy. But today we see the emergence of corporate PPAs with uh, companies willing to sign up for 10 years of green uh, power offtake. Sometimes those PPAs are a little longer, but 10 is quite common. And as a result of that, you can finance these assets for a period of time that's maybe slightly shorter than the length of the PPA. So you can get eight to 10 year financing today from, from the banks on the, back, on the back of those PPAs. But of course, if you're building a 30 year asset, that's the first year, 10 years taken care of, that's a third of the, uh, of the life of the project. So you still then have to feel confident that you'll be able to sign another PPA and maybe another one at the end of that, or that the, uh, the power markets will be sufficiently liquid and high enough price to uh, to make a return on your capital. But I think that's the way of the future. That's how things will increasingly get done. And while we're in a bit of a mixed economy at the moment, the benefit we have at Renewable Power Capital is, you know, we have none of those legacy assets. We're, in we're a new firm. We're entirely focused on the future. And we set ourselves up with the sort of flexible capital that's necessary 
to play in that new emerging market. So just to summarize then, would you actually kind of lobby for getting rid of the subsidy schemes? Because in a lot of countries, we actually see that there's quite a, a big cannibalization as soon as you have subsidy schemes in place, uh, such as in my own country, Germany, for instance, um, developers tend to go for um, for the available subsidies rather than going for merchant um, slash PPAs. I'm not, I'm not sure I would lobby for it. I'm not much of an activist, more of an investor myself. Yeah. But, uh, what, I meant more I advocating think, probably is the word. Yeah, what, what, what I think is that, you know, we'll have a period where different countries move at slightly different times. And so we're in the middle of that mixed economy, if you like, the tail end of feed-in tariffs or contracts for differences or auctions and moving towards a world which will be more corporate PPA driven, not entirely. So it's not a, a sort of black and white answer, more of a nuance. And we'll move increasingly in that direction going forward. But for a period of time, both will work, both will sit beside each other and, uh, and both will help develop the market. As you know, we need to scale up renewable energy significantly to get on track for uh, the commitments under the Paris Climate Accord. Yeah. So, I mean, we, as we're already talking about the role of um, of subsidy schemes and also in that sense, kind of the role of governments, um, I would like to dive a little bit into um, the the whole history of, of the Green Investment Bank, um, which basically came all from the idea of what is the role of government and what is the role of the private sector. Um, so could you give our listeners a bit of um, an introduction to what the Green Investment Bank um, was, set, was set up to be um, and why was that so different um, back when, when it was set up? Um, and why was it a, a structure that turned out to be copied around the world? Why, why was it so worthy to be copied then? So it was an interesting time. In uh, 2010, the uh, government did a piece of work here in the UK and understood that uh, if they were to hit the 2020-20 goals, 20% renewable energy, 20% drop in carbon emissions all by 2020, they would need to invest about 300 billion pounds, that was the estimate at the time, in new generating assets. So over a 10-year period, even I can do the maths, that's 30 billion a year. And when we looked at what was in being invested in the UK, it was around 13 or 14 billion per annum. So just less than half of the required amount. And of course, every year you miss that, you take that amount that you've missed, you stack it up onto the total and therefore the, you know, the target gets higher and higher. And it was clear that we were not on track. And so the idea was, could we set up a bank, a financial institution, you can call it a bank, that's what the government called it, but it was a financial institution that would lean into the challenges of climate change, that would show and encourage that you could make great risk-adjusted returns and a great green impact. And so we set up to, uh, to, to, to set up the bank and to go to Brussels and get state clearance, which you need, of course, for any uh, financial institution set up under the time that uh, the UK was in, in Europe. And when I came back from, from Brussels, they said, yes, you can set up the bank, but we need you to, uh, to really make sure that you don't push out private capital. So we need you to focus on the areas that no one else is focused and to really do the deals that no one else wants to do. And then I came back to the UK, very excited and said, government, we, we have the approval from Brussels to set up the bank, but we have to do the deals that no one else wants to do. And I said, well, 
We also have a requirement. We want to make this public capital stretch as far as possible. So we want you to do the deals as much of them with other people. So we crowd in this private capital. And so I sort of scratched my head a little bit and said, well, this is a tough mandate, isn't it? I've got to do the deals that nobody else wants to do. And I've got to do them with other people. Surely there aren't any. But of course, there were lots. And the reason there were lots of transactions, and to put it in context, we led about 12 and a half billion pounds of investments over a period of five years, three and a half billion of our own capital from the Green Investment Bank balance sheet, matched with nine billion of other people's capital. And the reason that we found so many transactions is that typically capital comes in boxes and it's got a very tight perimeter around it. And part of the role of the investment committee is to look at that perimeter and make sure that nothing that the business or the investment team are contemplating sits outside of that perimeter. Mm. Many of the things that we looked at just sat a little bit outside of that perimeter. So we would come in and we would pick them up. We would focus on them. We'd fix the bits that were difficult while others were unable to do so. And as a result of that, we led about 100 transactions totaling that 12 and a half billion. How do you define this uh, this perimeter that you're talking about? What was what was outside and what was inside? So it's different from people who provide debt and people who provide equity. Some are allowed to do construction, others not. Some need elongated PPA, others not. Some need project financing, others not. And so it's different project by project, asset by asset, sector by sector. But what we found were 100 transactions where some part of those transactions were either too difficult or the perimeter of the deal was outside. So for example, someone might bring a project that needed to go into construction within a matter of weeks and they did not have an offtake arrangement. And they would come to us and say, can you lend us money? And we would say, I'm afraid we can't lend you money because you've no offtake agreement. And they would mm. initially say, well, gee, you've been really helpful. Thanks a lot. We say, hang on, we haven't finished yet. We could do this deal all equity, take that risk. And so we'd start and issue the uh, notice to proceed. We'd start building the asset. During construction, we'd put in place the offtake arrangements. Then we would bring in the debt. Then we could complete the project. And so we took things which were apparently stranded and took risks that other people weren't willing to take because there were very few or no funds willing to take construction risk on an unlevered basis. We just did capital. And we delivered three things at the Green Investment Bank, which are hugely important. And the reason why I think it was admired and copied around the world. The first of us, we, we produced great risk-adjusted returns. We showed that you could invest in these types of climate-focused assets and deliver returns that the market would like. Secondly, we showed you could make a great green impact. When all the projects that we had built were completed, they produced enough renewable energy for every household in Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland to go 100% green. But the third thing that we created, which was really the most important thing, we created a business model that worked. The UK only produces about 1% of global carbon emissions, but the idea of a green investment bank, something that was government-owned, something that would lean into the challenges with flexible capital, was copied around the world. And there are now something like 35 of these institutions 
from Canada to China, all doing something similar. They each do slightly different things depending on what their market needs. But that was the real impact of the Green Investment Bank model. It was admired and copied around the world. It is interesting that kind of the a, a, in, in that sense, government uh, backed bank um, decided to take on um, the additional risk for the benefit, I would say, of the entire um, uh, economy and system. Right. Um, so, in 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 that sense, on top of the financial returns, um, you were looking at um, what I would call kind of climate impact returns. Um, on on the economy, I guess, or how how was that measured? How did that work exactly? We looked at three key things at the Green Investment Bank. First, the amount of green electricity that we produced, and as I said in the end, that was enough for every household in Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland to be 100% green. We looked at the carbon emissions that were avoided as a result. And because we did a lot of stuff in recycling and waste to energy, we also looked at the amount of waste that avoided being put into landfill. And we created a concept when we produced our annual report. We were a PLC, so all of this is public information. You can still find those uh, annual reports. But we created the concept of a green impact PL and a green impact balance sheet. The PL was kind of as all PL is. It was looking backwards over the last 12 months of those three metrics. What were the results? And the balance sheet looked at the lifetime impact, climate impact of those three metrics uh, over the period that the project would be running. And so every year we published uh, you know, the financials and we published the green impact. And, and do you measure only the green impact of the investment as such? So as I would say, for instance, the, the direct green impact, um, or did you take into account, which is something that a lot of companies are starting to do now, is to look at the impact across the value chain, um, the society and the economy? So this was back in 2012, which is a long time ago we set this up. So uh, we focused entirely on the impact on the project. So it was quite specific. And, uh, and we didn't try to estimate the more systemic green impact that these had. But to give you an idea of the systemic green impact for something like offshore wind, When we started investing in offshore wind, the, uh, the, the cost of the power in those first projects we did was over 150 pounds a megawatt hour when the market price was around 50. So about three times the cost of conventional power. At the point at which we were selling the Green Investment Bank, there was another round of auctions held for offshore wind in the UK. And the winning bid on one of those was 39 pounds a megawatt hour. So we took about 70% of the cost out over that period that we were investing. So while we only looked at the specific green impact of the projects we'd invested in, the systemic impact of investing in, we did nine projects over that period of five years, was, was such that it helped offshore wind significantly come down the cost curve to mm -hmm. become cheaper than conventional power and allow the UK to be the leading company or leading country, I should say, in, uh, in developing the scale of offshore wind that we still see today. Today, there's about 10 gigawatts, and the plan from the UK government is to get that up to 40 gigawatts. 
Yeah, interesting. And so um, I would like to talk a little bit more about um, the role of the private sector um, in investing into clean energy technologies um, and the Green Investment Bank and played a role in unlocking more um, private capital for this entire space. Now, there has been a lot of movement in, in the last couple of years um, in aligning actually the um, what I would call financial returns and, and the climate impact returns. Um, whereas in, in the past, that there might have been a really strong trade-off between making money and actually doing good for, for the climate. Where do you see um, this trade-off uh, in, in, in our world today? I, I don't think there's a need for a trade-off, first of all. We need to see much more capital moving. And it's really only institutional capital, whether it's flowing through the public markets or through the private markets that has the scale of capital necessary to solve the problem. Look, over the last 10 years, there's been a tremendous movement of ESG investing. Yeah. You know, Just Climate that we'll come on to talk about is part of the Generation family, and they have been an, a, a leader in developing those ESG products, those broad green products. And that has been incredibly helpful work and has been really necessary to establish that broad ESG framework of investing, but is no longer sufficient given the limited time we have left to curb carbon emissions. As you know, by 2030, we need to cut them by about 45%. And so it's important to now lean in and do even more that the broad ESG style of investing has been just a tremendous success, but it is no longer enough to save the day. Yeah, I fully agree. And, and, and now that you already mentioned it, um, let's talk a bit more about um, the, the, the new uh, business that you launched in the beginning of November, which is called Just Climate. Um, it's, it's backed uh, by a couple of private companies and uh, it's something quite revolutionary. So maybe you can uh, tell our listeners a little bit about um, what the plan is behind uh, Just Climate. It's hugely exciting because what we really want to do is turn the investment process on its head. So what do I mean by that? Well, typically you go out and you tell investors that you're going to raise a certain amount of money to focus on an area and you promise them a 25% return, for example. And when you do that, by definition, you exclude a number of areas because they won't provide you with 25% returns. So what we wanted to do is start in a different place. Let's start with where the economy and industry and the climate really needs focused. Where are those areas that really are producing the emissions? And when you look at this today, the emissions are coming, you know, 50% of those emissions are coming from areas that get less than 10% of the invested capital. And so let's start there. Let's understand those emissions. Let's understand the pathway to a lower emission future, to a net zero or a one and a half degree future. What are the technologies? What are the innovations? What are the business models? Which are the companies that will get us in that way? And put money to work there. But for that, I need flexible capital. I need capital with a longer duration to it because all of these technologies and these companies and, and, and these new innovative disruptive business models are on an S-shaped curve of adoption. 
Some of them will happen more quickly than we expect. Some of them will happen more slowly, unfortunately, than we expect. And so we need the time to get these right. So that's the first thing, flexible capital. Secondly, you need to be able to deploy that capital always to make the right and the appropriate risk-adjusted return. There's no form of concessional capital involved here. We need the right adjusted risk, risk-adjusted return, but we might invest in companies. We might invest in projects. We might invest in levered equity or unlevered equity. We might do a pipe. We might do a piece of mass. We will use whatever flavor of capital is necessary to ensure that the company succeeds and prospers and delivers the positive climate impact that we need to see. We call it climate-led investing because you start with a climate rather than starting with the returns. But in all occasions, we are looking for the appropriate risk-adjusted return for the piece of the capital stack that we will take. That's the kind of the story about just climate. Hugely innovative, very exciting. And if we get this right and we build this platform, people will see that you can deliver a a super risk-adjusted return and a great green impact. There's no trade-off to answer your question. But now we're talking about doing this with capital that flows from institutional investors. Part of the challenge of building a green investment bank is it is two, two challenges. The first is geographic reach. So each country does one of these. It can only invest within its borders. And as we all know, this is an international problem, which needs an international solution. Second challenge is that governments only have a certain amount of capital they can deploy. We really need institutional capital deployed through public or private markets to really solve this problem. And Just Climate is about showing that you can do this. So I assume when you were saying kind of the areas that are a bit more difficult to find capital for are the so-called hard to abate uh, sectors, so steel, cement, uh, and so on and so forth. So how how do you get private investors to actually put their money into into those sectors where it's needed? Well, you're right. First of all, the areas of focus are exactly those hard to decarbonize or hard to abate areas. We think of them in four buckets or four sectors. We think, first of all, of energy. Now, we don't want to do uh, wind or solar or offshore wind because there's plenty of capital flowing into those areas. We're looking to be catalytic. So we might look at hydrogen or sustainable fuels, uh, which might be synthetic fuels or biofuels. We might look at long-duration energy storage, the type of areas that will enable the grid to uh, embed more and more intermittent renewables. We'll look at mobility, probably not EVs or charging uh, networks, because indeed there's a lot of capital flowing into those. We might look at uh, aviation, we might look at shipping, we might look at HGV trucking. Those are all areas of interest where much less capital flows. Of course, you mentioned the two big buckets in industry, you know, uh, low carbon cement and green steel are huge areas, each of which is producing eight or 9% of global carbon emissions in cement production and steel production. And then we'll look at buildings. In buildings, we'll look at new building materials for new construction, which are cleaner and greener, but also the retrofit of existing uh, buildings. And so everyone understands that these things need to be decarbonized. It's all about not just the climate finance gap, but the climate impact gap. So let let me give you an example. 
when you look at you know a lot of the communication coming out of Glasgow and COP26 over the last few weeks, they talk about the three trillion dollar per annum climate finance gap, the amount of money that would be needed to get us on track for a one and a half degree future. However, if that all went into the same solutions that are seeing most of that money today, if that all went into wind or solar or offshore wind, it would certainly help, but it would not necessarily decarbonize cement production or HGV trucking or aviation. And we've got to decarbonize those areas. So you need to take a different approach. You need to start looking at not just the climate finance gap, but the climate impact gap. Right. And that definition is what we are focused on at Just Climate. Yeah, I, I mean, su super, super interesting. And to be honest, kind of when you were talking about the, the, the Green Investment Bank and the whole idea behind it, um, and, and especially your point about um, without an off taker, how can you invest into, into a project or asset? Um, and I'm seeing some some really new areas, um, such as, for instance, uh, greenfield hydrogen pipelines, which will be required to to ramp up the hydrogen economy, um, which have the exact same challenge. You need kind of uh, I've, I've I've heard people say in the market, you, you're not going to build a road without having a village uh, at either end of of the assets. So kind of similar topics arising in those new areas that will be will be required to, to ramp up quite significantly in the next decade. Com completely agree. And, you know, our plan is to lean into those. And of course, if you build a road, maybe you are able then to build a village at the other end. Our North Star for Just Climate will be to focus on where we can deliver that climate impact, where we can put capital that other money is not flowing, And if you have that flexible capital, and if you have that longer term horizon that you can see to the future, you can you could start to make these steps. And that's exactly where we want to play because we we're building out those roadmaps of how we get from where we are today to a one and a half degree world. And that's what is a binding commitment on all of us. We want to start flowing the capital in that direction And we also want to talk about it. We want to show people and collaborate with people that this can be done. We will have a collaboration style. We have members of the investment team whose job is solely to focus on partnerships with industry and finance players so that we can understand. Imagine if we were going to focus on sustainable aviation. We might want to work with the major aircraft manufacturers with the locations of the major airports, with the airlines, and say, what are you doing? How are you doing it? What are the things that you think will succeed? And then as they look to finance these solutions, working with them where they can be a co-investor, working with them where they could provide a location, working with them where they could, for example, be an off-taker as well as an investor, and share that risk and provide them with the capital working hand in glove with industry. That's what Just Climate wants to do. It really is a different approach to that which you've seen before. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited to see um, where, where Just Climate uh, is going to go. So, so fingers crossed and all the best for, for this, um, th this new business. 
Um, we are already slowly coming to an end of, the, of this podcast series, but before we do, um, we sometimes like to play a little game called Overrated or Underrated, where our guests basically give us a, a short evaluation of a topic um, and whether it is given too much or, or too little attention. Um, so we've got three topics. I think uh, some of them we, 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 we touched upon a little bit. Um, but let's start off with um, overrated or underrated, the use of hydrogen for aviation and maritime. What's your view on that one? So, so I'm going to be really bad at playing your game because I'm going to give a <laughs> nuanced answer, which is not what you want at all. I, <laughs> I want so, a short answer on that one. <laughs> I, I, I think hydrogen will play a, a critical role in, in a variety, not in, not in vehicles, but in those harder bits, some of which are aviation and HGV trucking but it's a 2030 plus period yeah. rather than in the next few years. However, the next few years may be a great time to start investing in that infrastructure and that technology to ensure that it's there and able to make the contribution that I think it can. Yeah, I fully agree on that one. It's uh, it's certainly not going to be the two sectors, kind of the first mover sectors um, for, for the hydrogen economy. Um, so the second one uh, we touched upon a little bit as well. So corporate PPAs as a tool for corporate decarbonization, is it overrated or underrated? I, 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 think, it's, I think it's critical, but I think that alone will not deliver a green future for many corporates. Even if you decarbonize all of your power consumption, you won't decarbonize your supply chain. So huge part of the answer for many corporates but not the only thing. There's other things they will need to do. Yeah, which which ties in, in, in into, into also the hydrogen economy and understanding how much can you actually electrify of your business exactly. and, and how much um, do you, will you require hydrogen also. Uh, PPA topic obviously being a, a, a massive hot topic for the moment in the market. Um, lots of corporate actually looking into this space um, on a, as a quite a new topic um, for, for many of them. Um, then the last one, um, a bit of a more political one, I, I guess. So COP26, is it overrated or underrated? Um, I, I think it's right in the middle. I think people who expect to be able to declare victory or failure are being a bit binary. It produced many great outcomes, you know, commitments on reduction of methane, reduction of coal, the, you know, the, the completion of, of deforestation so that that no longer happens and great commitments from the finance community. But did it go the whole way to delivering a one and a half degree future? No, it didn't. There's still a gap. Yeah. But we've got to keep working at this. We can't give up. And, and I really... I really think it's tough for on those people arranging the cups to, to really sort of say, is it a Paris or is it a Copenhagen? They're mostly going to be something in between. And this was certainly one of it. Lots of stuff to be positive about. Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, we, we've, we, we've slowly come to um, a, a, the, the cops not being about targets, but actually uh, being about um, the implementation, how to actually get there and setting targets on the coal excess um, and, and so on. So uh, fully agree with your assessment there. Still a long way to go, but the cops certainly um, help uh, convening the people and then getting, uh, getting them to discuss the, the really critical topics um, that, that we will face in the next decade on, on the climate transition. So we've come to an end of the podcast today. My guest on the show today was Sean Kingsbury. Sean, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Declan, it's great to speak to you and to talk about some of the exciting things I see in the market. Thank you very much for inviting me. That was Tekla Von Bulow, Principal for Commission Projects at Aurora, talking to Sean Kingsbury, Chief Investment Officer at Just Climate. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.